Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. My name is Steve Krauss. Today, I have David K. Piano on the podcast. David is a pianist and a passionate developer of CSS and JavaScript. He currently works for Microsoft. In the past few years, he has given talks about state charts all around the world, and he has created the xstate JavaScript library. He also co-runs the state charts community online. If you caught my conversation with Kevin Lina a few weeks ago, you will find this conversation a nice follow-up. David is uh, a bit of a celebrity on the CodePen community online for his um, CSS animations. He is uh, one half of the Keyframers live stream duo, where they take animations from Dribbble and re-implement them in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And as we discuss in this podcast, he is working on a new SaaS startup to help developers understand how their applications work visually from a state charts perspective. It was a really fun conversation, and without any further ado, I bring you David K. Piano. So today we have David Korshid on the podcast, also known as at David K. Piano on Twitter. So welcome, David. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on the show. So um, I wanted to start, as I often do with these episodes, with your background, how you originally got into programming, which I I think I've heard elsewhere on the internet is a particularly interesting story. (laughs) Yeah, well, I've always been interested in programming just um, ever since I was at the library when I was around 14, 15 years old, and I found this book on uh, doing number theory with BASIC. And so, of course, I was trying to actually do these exercises just because I was very into math. Uh, So I've always sort of had a knack for programming, but I actually went to college for music performance because I do piano, hence David K. Piano. And uh, there was this intro to music technology class. And in this class, our final project was to make a marketing page that essentially marketed ourselves. And we were told to use this program called iWeb, which is a drag-and-drop interface, I don't know if you remember, uh, similar to Dreamweaver. And I did not want to do that, mostly because I didn't have a Mac and I didn't want to drive all the way to school. So I figured, hmm, there must be a way that I could just do this myself. And so I just studied up and looked up this HTML, CSS, JavaScript stuff, and I went through all the basics and made my own website. Um, when I presented it to the class, my professor said, you need to be doing this as a career. And so I did a little research and I found like, oh, hey, it pays a little bit more than, uh, whatever my music degree would get me. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, so yeah, I got a, uh, sort of a part-time job at the college of sciences at my university and today I'm here. <laughs> awesome. Um, and then, so I feel like that's, uh, it's interesting to hear about how you got into programming. Um, but then I, I feel like you're one of the, because, you know, I guess because I'm interviewing you on this podcast, you're one of the people who's interested in like pushing programming forward and making it better. So how'd you get into that kind of subfield of programming? Oh, just being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, um, music has a lot to do with it just because Music forces you to think creatively. That's what all music performing arts, visual arts, any sort of art is about. And when you think creatively, you try to come up with different solutions to common problems. And I wanted to apply this to programming in a way. 
Um, and I, I think that musicians tend more towards the declarative side of programming because if you think about what music is, it, it's a very creative, free-flowing form of expression, uh, usually done through you know sound, of course. But we represent this using music notation, which is very declarative and very exact. So we don't have someone saying, play this note. Okay, now play this note. Now play that note. Now do this. Now do that. It's just right there. Like, this is what the music is. Interpret it as you may. And so that music could be adapted between instruments or adapted to, you know, even more than one musician. And so it's a very declarative, flexible format. And I thought we should be applying this to programming more and more. And so that's why I... I tended towards a more declarative approach towards programming and I was doing a lot of research and then I realized that thinking about programming this way and doing programming in a declarative way actually saves a lot of time and makes all of our applications easier to digest and understand and more maintainable too. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm, I, um, to like kind of push forward this music metaphor, if, if it's a metaphor is, uh, I was thinking about how, musical notation is very much not like put your finger here on the instrument, like take this breath, then breathe into the instrument. Uh, it, it, instead it, you, you have the notes like almost on a stream, which, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. And streams are like these very declarative visualization over time. So I, I don't know something about that, like the difference between like, imagine how much worse uh, musical notation would be if it was imperative. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't even know how you would represent that. It's just, <laughs> so hard to think about. Yeah. Um, interesting. So I guess one thing I just want to uh, like confirm with you on um, is that m many of the people who I interview on this podcast got their start in this field of improving programming from people like Brett Victor or Alan Kay, those sorts of folks. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're, I was going to, I was wondering if you are familiar with them or if they were part partial influences or not. Or, or Defin um, definitely Brett Victor. Um, and I'm sure he's influenced a great many people. Uh, the, the main thing about Brett Victor is that he's moving towards a more tangible way of doing programming, doing developments, and representing ideas and concepts. And that's why he has this, uh, I think it's called Dynamic Land Project, where programming is actually tangible. But in the past, he's had all of these experiments which were highly visual and highly manipulatable um, in order to just represent many different things and even program with it as well. And I know that there have been many attempts at doing things like this with programming languages, but lately it's sort of been just met with resistance just because it takes developers out of their comfort zone of just typing code. But the more you look into what Brett Victor is doing and what other people are doing with these dynamic visual representations, the more silly like coding seems like just typing stuff. And hopefully if you don't make a typo, everything works. And so that seems a little bit silly to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm with you. Uh, so it seems like uh, there's been a lot of activity, a lot of people recently, particularly in the JavaScript front end user interface community of people talking about uh, this state charts thing. Uh, and so I'd be curious if you could walk me through kind of how, like originally where those ideas came from. And then I'd also be equally curious to hear about 
like how those ideas have kind of resurfaced today. Like who are like who are the people who originally started talking about them, and then how you found out about them, and kind of what you've been doing with these ideas. So I've been um, back back when I was starting like my first, I guess you could call it a big boy job, uh, developing. Um, we it was at this uh, this electronic prescription company. And we had these complex workflows for these medications. And these workflows had a complex sequence of steps that could change depending on what you check or what the user selected or just various other factors. And so I strived to uh, think of what I could do to represent this in a declarative way. And through that, I started researching on you know finite state machines and seeing that these sequence of steps can be represented as finite state machines. And of course that led to um, learning about state charts as well. And so I, I've been researching them just quietly uh, for a while and just just continuously thinking about how, how we could actually use these in our applications. And it turns out that they, they're actually in use and they've been in use for decades in other industries, just not the web development or native mobile development industry for I guess, whatever reason. Um, and so I, I was researching these ideas more and more, and I submitted a talk to React Rally in August of 2016 or 2017, I believe. One of those days. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think it was 2017. And um, surprisingly, they accepted it. I thought that, you know, no one is going to want to hear about this you know, this weird computer science topic that you learn in school and you know, immediately forgot because it didn't apply directly to the software that you were building. Uh, but there was a lot of traction over it just because uh, a lot of the promises were there that it makes developing software not only easier, but more robust. And the idea of having things visually represented was just a huge selling point to a lot of developers. And so that, that also paired with um, uh, Kevin Lina's sketch systems. Um, I, I remember he actually sent, uh, right before the, the conference, he sent an email from Subform, which Subform is a, uh, is a design tool, uh, similar to, uh, sort of similar to Sketch. And uh, in that email, he was actually talking about state charts, just you know, planting that seed in uh, you know, people. And so I emailed him, did some back and forth, and told him that I was going to give a presentation about this. And so I guess between the mix of those two things, state charts and state machines have risen in popularity in the front-end community. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I, some other names to just throw out there. I, I, I guess David Harrell is the original guy. Yes. And then Ian Horrocks is the guy who wrote the book on applying state charts to user interfaces. Mm-hmm. And then there were two other names, Adam Solo, Solov. I think. Yes, Adam Solov. He wrote an article that that was related to this. I feel like he and Kevin might be friends. I, I'm <laughs> and then Guillermo Ranch also um, is is responsible for getting these ideas out there. Um, yeah. I, don't know. I, 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 it, I just wanted to kind of fill out the, uh, the, the like the picture of how these ideas kind of got germinated and spread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Adam Salo, he wrote an article called Pure UI Control, which 
is a is based on Guillermo Roch, however you pronounce his last name, his essay called Pure UI. And in this uh, Pure UI essay, he's talking about just the this abstract idea of instead of imperatively saying your app does this and then it does that and then it could do this and do that, instead breaking it out into states. And so Adam Salove took that article and he wrote a follow-up article in which he defines a very concrete concepts to this, which is state charts. And um, yeah, so Ian Horrocks, that book, uh, Constructing the User Interface with State Charts, uh, I read that book actually like probably twice now, like cover to cover. Um, just and it, what I love about that book is that it, it describes even modern development so well, even though it was written back in, I believe, 1998. So really, really far back. Uh, well, at least it seems far back. <laughs> and of course, Harold was the inventor of state charts, wrote the original paper in 1987. Cool. And then I think um, just to get fully up to speed, I think there's a Eric Mogensen has created this world of state charts website of resources and like a mm-hmm. community of people. So I just wanted to put a plug in for that too. Yeah, Eric Mogensen, um, he actually gave a presentation about state charts in user interfaces all the way back in 2014, which I found really interesting. And that's actually how uh, me and him connected uh, because he was one of my influences as well and sort of solidified the idea of how useful state charts could be in user interfaces. And so he he and I uh, were, you know, we run a great community over at uh spectrum.chat slash state charts, um, where there's actually a few really passionate people who we, we discuss the ideas of state charts and using them in all sorts of various applications on there. Cool. Um, so I guess to get a little bit more concrete, uh, you've taken these ideas about state charts and you've created this library xState. So I'd be curious to hear yes. what that's about. So xState is a library that um, basically, I wanted a JavaScript library that encompassed all of these ideas of state charts. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted a library that embraced the ideas of functional and reactive programming at the same time. Um, so the, the various other libraries that existed, I, act, I, I thought that the API was either too separated from the original ideas or too limited in that they didn't they didn't encompass all of the uh, all of the original ideas of state charts, or that they um, they might have, such as like uh, Scion Core, um, which is probably the biggest inspiration for this library. But um, it tried to control everything, and instead, uh, in this day of various modern frameworks and libraries, I wanted to give the developer the freedom to just use you know, use a state chart as a pure function. And so you give it a state, you give it an event, and it just returns the next state deterministically, and it will always be the same next state. And then you could use that next state to determine um, which actions to perform afterwards and how to change the state on your own. For example, in React, it would just be this.statState. In Vue, it would, well, you would just you know, mutate the object directly, I guess. <laughs> and in Angular, you would use RxJS. Got it. 
Um, I remember seeing like in a, uh, in a talk of yours, you showed that like uh, almost like a prototype of X state was just an object. You know, you just have objects that point to other points in that object with like object selectors. Right. Yeah. So, how, so why do you need a whole library? It seems like it's a pretty simple idea. That's a, that's a very good question. So if you are doing just flat state machines, then of course you don't need a library. And I tell people you do not need a library. You could just use an object and it just becomes a, what I call an adjacency map, which is similar to an adjacency list. And that's just pointing like it, basically we're describing a graph, right? And the graph has nodes and edges. So edges connects nodes. And so if you have an object where all of the keys are nodes, then you could relate them to different nodes via just another nested object. So it goes node, edges, and each edge points to a node, which is just a string. And then so you, you could just do a simple object lookup to, um, to determine what the next state is. However, doing state charts, it gets a bit more complicated. And the reason is because state charts introduce uh, concepts such as nested states, parallel states, and even things like on-entry, on-exit, transition actions, uh, transient actions, um, or sorry, transient transitions, conditions, all sorts of things that make it a lot harder to simply do an object lookup. And so... That's why a library is necessary. <laughs> Got it. So I want to drill down on how Xstate and React, oh, sorry, and like, I guess React or more specifically Redux play together, because I know that's a common question for people. Yeah. So where does Xstate live? Does it live in the model and like the store? Does it live in actions, in the reducer, in the view? How does it interact with those things? So... Xstate at its core is just a function. So you define the machine. So machine, you give it the JSON configuration, and then you are you, you have a transition method. And so that's your pure function. And so um, that can pretty much live anywhere that you need, anywhere that you need to determine the next state. In Redux, it sort of works like a reducer because in Redux, a reducer is you have a state, and based on the action, you get the next state. Um, the transition function works in the same way, where the transition, you give it the current state, and then you give it an event, and then the next state and various actions to be performed are returned. Um, and so it, it could live as part of the Redux reducer, depending on which specific reducers you're using, or it could be a standalone reducer as well. Now, if you're not using Redux, um, I'm not sure how it, it would work in MobX, but you could certainly use MobX Date Tree to accomplish similar things. Um, but in React, uh, you could have a method on a component um, like send. And so that send is responsible for taking an event, getting the current state from the component state, and setting the next state, and also performing any actions that need to be performed. And that's something that I actually found was sorely missing from React, and, or sorry, from Redux, and why so many supplemental libraries exist for Redux to bridge the gap of what to do when you transition to a state, but you also need to perform actions. So one simple example is, let's say that you are building a search application, and um, 
you had to transition from like idle to loading when you started a search, but you also need to trigger a search, which you know sounds imperative. You need to perform that action of actually executing the search. So in Redux, you cannot do that within a reducer. The reducer function must be pure. So you have to like have another way of doing that. And so what ends up happening is spaghetti logic within your components where you're both dispatching a state change and you're executing that search action, um, or you use various solutions such as Redux Saga or Redux Observable or Redux Thunk to do that imperatively, which both of them just sound very spaghetti. <laughs> and so how does re- uh, XState solve this problem? So XState, actually, uh, I mentioned Redux Saga, but it, it does a similar approach. And what it's called is declarative effects. So instead of executing the action, your state that's returned from um, the transition function of like, you, you know, you're given the current state in an event, that state object that's returned contains both the next state value, such as loading, and also an array of actions. And so those actions are not executed. They just say, by the way, when you get the state, don't forget to execute all these actions. It does not execute it itself, but instead it gives that metadata over to the developer and the developer can do you know, what they please with that. Got it. Um, so uh, I'm curious to know about the like, current status of XState. Like what, I guess, is it ready for production? Uh, are people using it? So XState is being used in production. And I, I was actually going to um, <laughs> try to dig around on Twitter or GitHub or wherever and uh, figure out where exactly people are using it in production. But I do know um, one example. If you go to workshop.me, uh, Ryan Florence, who um, worked on that site, has created a, it's actually a pretty complex payment flow in the site, and he did it using XState. And I, I was actually really surprised to learn about this. Um, so I, I went to workshop.me, and I looked through their minified JavaScript code <laughs> looking for that XState-specific code. And I found it. I copy-pasted the JSON into a visualizing tool that I made, and I saw the state chart right there. And I was really surprised. It's a very in-depth state chart that describes this complex flow. Wow, that, that's a, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so I I do know that it's being used in other places. Uh, I don't have specific company names. Um, there are people who say, uh, you know, who are telling me like, hey, I'm using this in production in my company and this isn't working or I would like this feature. So I, I do get a lot of those. So I do know that it's being used um, in the wild. And of course, I'm using it in my own personal projects as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking on the, the GitHub page. You have 1,800 stars. So that's like pretty legit. Yeah, yeah. Very surprising. <laughs> how, I'd be curious to, to know if you, like, how did that happen? Was it from talks? Um do you have a sense of like how you gain stargazers? Uh, well, so first of all, I don't really use stars as a proxy for- valuable metric. It's just a glorified bookmarking tool. <laughs> However, um, I well, it's also somewhat of a sign of popularity as well. Um, but uh, I've given a few talks on state machines and state charts before. 
uh, being React Rally at JSConf Iceland and also at uh, React Conf in Finland. And, and so I guess I sort of advertise at those different places. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where the other stars. I, I wish that GitHub had a feature where it could tell you where these, <laughs> like how those stars came to be, like where the people came from. Well, you mentioned that you don't, I, I agree with you. They're not like a great metric for anything. <laughs> um, are there other metrics that you keep track of to know like how it's doing in the wild? Sure. So I also look at um, both insights and dependencies on GitHub. Uh, the insights are good for showing uh, where a lot of the traffic is coming from. And so a lot of it comes from the documentation page that I uh, that I have up on davidkpn.github.io slash xdate. Uh, but also on Smashing Magazine, someone wrote an article mentioning xdate, so not even directly related to it. And... Uh, I guess there's some from news or dot y combinator.com, which sort of scares me. Don't want to look there, <laughs> but in, in some, uh, various medium posts as well. In fact, there was one recently from, uh, her name is Eli shoots Ramirez. Uh, and so it, it was an article talking about, it's called vintage concepts, fresh applications, CS or computer science in JavaScript. And it was talking about how, you know, this simple concept of state machines from computer science is extremely useful in doing UI development for the web. And so, so I guess that, you know, medium and other various sources. Yeah. Cool. And so uh, what's the future of this X-State uh, library? Oh, there's there's a lot. So I'm continuously working on it and uh, just always listening for, you know, issues and feedback. And um, one of the things that I'm trying to, well, I, I say I, it's more of a we, because there's there's a bunch of other contributors to X-State. Eric Mogensen, uh, you know, the... Uh, who made statecharts.github.io. He's been a huge help and a huge contributor as well. But um, I want to avoid design by committee, uh, which is when just if someone has some sort of clever idea and it sounds halfway decent, we just include it. I want to stay away from that because there's actually a standard called SCXML. And this standard has been around for about 10 years. Um, and it describes state charts and it's interoperable because it's X XML. It's interoperable between basically any language that implements some sort of SCXML interface and way to build state charts using SCXML. And I know C++ could do this with Boost, I believe, um, Java as well. And um, I guess various other things use SCXML. Uh, and so I, one of my hugest goals with XState is to make it SCXML compliant um, so that I could generate SCXML from the state charts that anyone would write in you know, JavaScript and have that like viewable in any sort of visualizer or program that takes SCXML, which, I mean, there are a few that do that. Cool. Um, I, I think I saw somewhere that, uh, uh, two bullet points that I wanted to ask about. I saw that you, you mentioned that there might be like an interpreter of some sort. For yeah. So 
so for now, and um, just to give a definition to the name, an interpreter is, um, is something that takes the results of, or something that handles the transitions. So since the transition function is pure, or it's more of a method, but it's pure, it just gives you the state and then you do with it as you please. So that doing with it as you please, that's a job of the interpreter. And um, the interpreter is in charge of actually modifying the application state and also performing any actions uh, that the state returns. Um, I was thinking about just including an official interpreter uh, just because there's various uh, concepts such as uh, delays uh, such as, you know, delaying an action and doing activities and just dealing with time. Um, so um, I, I just want to make one as a starting point for developers. But mostly people who have been using XState, they've made their own interpreters because they have some special business logic or they want to handle state changes in their own way. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that's definitely one of the goals. That makes sense. Another... Um thing I saw you mentioned was like editable state chart visualizations. Yeah. Yeah. So right now I have on bits.ly slash xdate dash viz. It's a weird URL. <laughs> if you click it, it's even a weirder URL because I just whipped it up quickly. But um, it's it's a tool that you could copy and paste your state chart JSON from xdate and it visualizes it for you. And you could also, you know, just go through the states and uh, see see how everything is working. Um, but I, I am in the process of developing an application that not only lets you visualize state charts, but also modify them, you know, manage them, save them, uh, test them. So generating automatic tests based on uh, the state chart definition, uh, but also uh, like do analysis as well. And so if you think of a state chart uh, as a graph, you have many different paths that you could go on. Um, and when we think of analysis, like just generally, we, we think of things like funnel charts where we have a certain user flow and we want to check that the user gets from point A to point B. However, you know, we're finding more and more that that's not sufficient because there's many, many, many different ways that a user could navigate an application. And this is where state charts come into play. Uh, and so if we could visualize just the entire graph of how users use an application, then we could, we could derive much deeper insights into how users use the application so that we could further enhance the application. So um, I'm, I'm trying to create a, uh, basically a service that does that for developers. And it sounds like an analytics service? Uh, well, analytics, testing, visualization, editing, um, storage, <laughs> just a whole ton of things. Uh, not unrelated to uh, software like this that exists in other industries. Well, it almost sounds like TLA plus, or is this unrelated? Uh, not exactly TLA plus. Um, because uh, TLA plus is more about formal verification, um, which with state charts, it is somewhat possible to formally verify them. I know that there have been a few uh, papers written on that, but it's more for, um, for practical usage. So some of the tools uh, that are similar are like 
uh, Qt Creator, um, also uh, MathWorks uh, Simulink Stateflow software, and uh, you can do state chart tools. So those three, obviously, never heard of before in the web development space, <laughs> but they are similar tools that exist for uh, industries such as automotive engineering or embedded electronics that are very useful for modeling uh, well, software and hardware. Interesting. And so these projects, so this is it that you're working on, um, is it going to stay under the XState open source umbrella or is, it almost sounds like it could be like a SaaS company? Right. So I'm planning on making that part of SaaS company. I, I want XState to always be completely free and open source, you know, for developers to use. But I also think that there's a lot of value in in having software that basically saves tech teams lots of time and lots of money because that's fewer tests that you have to write and fewer headaches with determining what the complex business logic is. And also it makes it easier to to enhance the software, you know, as in adding features, modifying features, seeing what happens if you remove a state uh, and just manipulating, you know, just manipulating states. And so um, obviously it's going to be a SaaS because the data needs to live somewhere and that's not free. Um, but my ultimate goal is to make uh, something like this completely free for any open source project. Oh, cool. And so um, this service, how, I'm curious how you see it interacting with the other code that developers write or, or do you see it totally replacing code or is it like, how does it hook in? That's a really good question. So um, in, I guess this is more of a general question for XState as well, because I've had people ask me like, um, you know, XState, this whole state chart thing, it seems really cool, but I, I have legacy software. I don't want to redo my software. I'm not building anything new. So unfortunately this isn't much use to me. And so um, just to give a story, I gave a uh, workshop over at React Finland where uh, we had to build an app and I wanted to show them how, uh, how state charts worked and how it could be used in applications. But the first thing I told them was I gave them the, the business requirements, which it, it was pretty simple. It's a feedback form. So first it asks you a question like, how's your experience? And then you can click good or bad. If you click good, it says thanks. If you click bad, it asks you, or actually if you click bad, it says thanks as well. Um, but later we changed that so that if you click bad, it asks you why, and then you had to input why, and then it took you to the thanks page. And then of course you could exit that screen. Um, so I told them, those are your business requirements, open up React and um, just do it however you want. And so they did. And so that was me showing them that it doesn't matter how you write the software. It could be legacy software that you wrote 10 years ago. It could be Greenfield software, doesn't matter. What we did from there was we learned about state charts and then we built a state chart that describes the application in a very abstract way. So we said that the initial state is this question state and then there's two actions. You could either click the good button or the bad button. And then, sorry, events, good or bad events. And then those events transitioned to, say, a, uh, a form state where you could say why your experience was bad or a thank you state where you, you, know, you just had this confirmation. 
And so we modeled that as a state chart, or well, state machine at this point. And th this is completely separate from the application code. Now, using this state chart code, we, uh, we took that and we generated all simple paths. So all paths from the initial states to every single other state that a user could navigate through. And so I, I think since this was a simple application, it generated a total of um, 24 or 26 full integration tests. We used those tests uh, combined with a couple of heuristics to test our application that we made. So remember, no code was modified, no code was touched. We, we don't even know what the code looks like. And for most of the people in the workshop, they said like, okay, awesome, all the tests pass, which means that the state chart accurately describes the, the business logic of our application. And so for those who, um, for who the tests didn't pass, it turned out that they had bugs. So they went and fixed those bugs and then the tests magically passed. And then from there, we were able to refactor the code confidently knowing that our state chart described our application uh, in a robust way. So it makes a great refactor target, basically. Got it. So I'm trying to like kind of build an analogy of how the, the, the service you're building, the SaaS service you're building, like what, uh, so it, it kind of holds on, it's almost like a GitHub, but only for your state charts. And then, and then your other, your other code lives in the actual GitHub. Is that kind of the separation? Uh, sort of. So um, at the end of the day, a state chart is um, basically just a big JSON file or an XML file if you're using SCXML. And then you could use those files however you want. You could use them within your app, put them in an interpreter, and then use that to uh, deterministically manage your application state and any actions that your application you know, may use. So it, it's all up to the developer. And so that's why I think a tool like this would be valuable because it's it's framework agnostic, and it's um, you know it's just going to simplify and visualize a lot of the process. Plus, if you're using it within your app, I, I was thinking that there could also be ways to debug or not debug, but just analyze an app in real time. So as a user is using the app, or well. I guess due to privacy concerns, as a developer is using the app, uh, they would be able to see on a visual representation of the state chart what state they're in and what events happened. Got it. It's almost like a uh, developer tools experience, like the Redux developer tools experience. Right. Redux, but less text, more visual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you. Um, and I'd be curious to hear how you think your tool would compare to uh, Kevin Lina, um, his sketch systems tool. Um, yeah. So I actually, I, I actually talked to him about that and I, um, I, I went back and forth with him on, on his ideas. So I think that sketch.systems is a fantastic way of prototyping um, systems and getting that much closer to bridging the gap between design and development. Uh, because unfortunately, we have all of these awesome design prototyping tools and uh, nothing really that fully describes the behavior of components. So all, all of these prototyping tools that you've seen, such as Sketch or uh, I guess Envision, 
or Figma, all of those are mainly focused on how different components of your application look, but they're not focused on how they behave. And so this is where Sketch.Systems bridges that gap because now it becomes possible for you to describe how your components in visual layout, just various parts of your application should behave, which I think is even more important than how it looks. Um, and so it's very useful for bridging the gap. Uh, with, um, with my software, what I'm planning to do is have it be much more on the development side. And so it's sort of a carryover of, um, of just designing the behavior of components, but actually being able to use that meta information directly in your code. Got it. Um, well, I'm curious because right now you can use sketch.systems to export into your XState library. Um, yeah. So like what, what diff like your, your visual editor, like how would it differ? Would it use like the same kind of syntax or would it be more direct manipulation, editing nodes? Had, or, or would it be like, because I know you have a JSON X, XML thing you've been mentioning. So is that the way you edit the um, say chart? So um, I actually want to be very visual. And we were talking about this earlier, but I, I'm very influenced by, uh, by programs such as Facebook's Origami, mm -hmm. in which it's just a complete visual manipulation uh design tool and you could visually see how various parts are connected. It's also similar to Unity's tool for managing um, finite state machines. And actually Unity does hierarchical state machines as well. And so, you know, even in the game development world, developers are using visual tools like this to, uh, with direct manipulation and uh, just that huge visual aspect in order to create these complex animations for games. And so that's what I want to do as well, just have a very visual interface. Like I, I would love to just even open up my, you know, my Surface Book Pro or my iPad tablet and be able to drag around different nodes and, you know, edit an application from just touching. <laughs> cool. I got it. Um, so I want to move on to a, a related but slightly different topic that we're also we're also both interested in uh, react functional reactive programming. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I um, I saw uh, two in two different places I saw these quotes of yours. Uh, in one place you cited Connor Elliott and Paul H uh, Hudak's original paper about functional reactive programming. So um, that tells me that you're like you know one of the original you're you're into the original thing. You're not just like a bandwagon React person. Right. <laughs> and I saw you said elsewhere that, uh, that React is not really reactive. It's more of a scheduler thing, which the mm -hmm. said as well. So um, I, I'd be curious to yeah, learn about kind of how you see FRP. And I know there are a lot of different flavors of FRP. And I don't know, just I kind of want to get a sense of how, how, what, how you see it and what you think is important about it. Right. Well, if you really dig into it, FRP is... Uh, very, very mathematical, and there's probably people who know a lot, or well, there's definitely people who know a lot more about it than, uh, than me, especially the original quote-unquote functional reactive programming, um, because functional reactive programming is based on continuous signals, and uh, things such as RxJS are more based on discrete signals, and push versus pull, blah, 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 all that. Um, but, uh, so... With reactive programming, it's just the idea of 
of treating time as a first-class citizen. And so I think that pairs nicely with state machines. And, um, and yeah, I actually forgot the original question. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I didn't really ask a great question. Um, but, but you okay. said the um, – you – you answered it the way I was hoping you would. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> what I um, and and you actually mentioned the thing that I wanted to ask the follow up question on. Um, so, um, th- this interaction of like X state and state charts and reactive programming I find fascinating um, because, like, part of what's so great about observables, uh, and I think I, I saw you explain this in one of your keyframers videos. Uh, uh, observables are like events, but instead of a one at a time kind of world, you kind of, you can grab all the events of all time for forever. Um, because like you said, re- functional reactive programming lets you, uh, kind of play God with time. But then yeah. on the other hand, uh, X, uh, state charts and X state, it almost feels like, uh, in those worlds, you kind of take events one at a time, like actions. You know, it feels a little bit in the old world to me. Do you see what I'm saying? Like th- that kind of contradiction that they like don't seem so compatible. Yeah, I, I don't really see that as a contradiction. Just because, um, well, for one, in RxJS, I use the scan operator a lot, which scan basically works as an intermediate reducer, where you know, given a state, you take you know some event and then you transform that into a new state. And so that's exactly how these you know state machines and state charts work. And so I, I think that they actually pair quite nicely together. And I, I've actually been working on an interpreter for XState based on RxJS. Um, I, I plan on creating a simpler one just based on native JavaScript, just because that's easier to do and people don't really like dependencies. But with RxJS, like you said, you could play God with time. So if I want to test an event that happens uh, that's delayed by 10 seconds, I could manipulate time and say, hey, that 10 seconds is really 10 milliseconds, uh, just so that my tests run faster, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I actually think that they do pair you know, pretty nicely. Also, uh, state charts, when people try to, uh, try to manage and refactor their application into state charts, they end up sometimes coming up with like... Uh, questions about how you model certain complex things because the state chart could do this and that and, you know, having parallel states. But according to both the original paper and um, SCXML, state charts can communicate with each other. And so it's this whole idea of event passing where one state chart can admit its states to another state chart who could respond to that state. And then you get this like network of state charts. Sort of like, you know, galaxies in the universe, right? You know, you have all these solar systems and every they, they form these groups and then you have like these big galaxies. That's sort of the same thing with state charts. I don't know if that was a good analogy. But <laughs> sort of get the idea. But And so reactive programming, um, it basically works the same way. It implicitly uh, creates a, a directed graph of like just, observables that are dependent on other observables. And um, so it actually makes makes event-based programming a lot easier to think about because you're not forced into this hierarchy of, like say in React, you have to pass from the top down. With observables, it's just you connect to whichever observable you're interested in. And so 
one of these state charts could easily be an observable where it takes an events and it returns or it emits um, it emits uh, new states and the actions to be performed, which can be mapped to you know more events. Got it. Um, cool. So there was something you mentioned earlier in this conversation. Uh, you mentioned how like Facebook origami is kind of like an inspiration for this other software you're working on to visualize state charts. Um, so I kind of want to dig into that because I also am a software developer, not a designer who origami was built for, but I'm, I'm, I'm also interested in origami as how it points towards like building better products for software uh, engineers. Cause I think it's, it really does a good job of pointing towards the future of programming. Right. Um, yeah, I, I played around with origami. Of course, I'm, I'm not a designer per se either, but um, what I like about origami is that it, cre- it, it really highlights just the intuitive parts of uh, functional reactive programming. So for those who aren't familiar, origami, you have these things called patches, and these patches have a series of inputs and outputs. And just to be, um, just so, to be clear, patches are just nodes, and, and they're like yeah. patches with wires. Right, right. So, you know, you would input, you know, certain, like, uh, so you would have source patches, right? And then those would emit certain values to other patches, and those patches would react to those values and just output other values. And so now you have this created, uh, this connected network of different patches, uh, which all, you know, just, uh, do very specific things. And, um, it, it's mainly used for just like describing, uh, the complex reactive animations that are present in mobile apps, um, which is why it's very useful for designers so that they could accurately describe to developers what sort of reactive effects they're looking for, where, you know, they can't just make an after effects movie or, uh, some sort of GIF representation, they could actually show them an origami project and say, when, like, for example, when you swipe to the right, these move faster than this one, or this shows, this hides, um, all of that complex logic. Um, totally. Yeah. And, and so, so that fits in very well with functional and reactive programming. And uh, whenever I play with origami, I think, man, we, we could definitely make something that works with RxJS or most.js or whatever your favorite functional and reactive programming library is. And we could, we could make a visual tool for that too. And so I definitely have a lot of ideas around that as well. And there's, um, there is a language that does that. It's called luna-lang.org. So Luna is a functional programming language. Uh, and it's also a very visual language too, in which you could both code and um, have things represented in terms of a graph. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've played with Luna as well. Um, my gripe with Luna is that it um, it's missing these source events. Like you can't derive events from like button clicks and key presses and stuff. You can't actually make interfaces, oh, okay. which is what you and I are like kind of all about. Um, mm-hmm. But but I agree that that it's. I, I totally agree with you. And I actually kind of feel like we should talk more offline about that visualization of X, uh, like RxJS and stream libraries, because that is, that's kind of what I'm working on uh, these days. Really awesome. (laughs) Yeah. My, my current thesis is that, um, the, the, the problem, like part of why origami works so well is because it uses a limited form of programming, functional reactive programming, which doesn't have a lot of the features of imperative programming. Um, but, uh, origami 
doesn't scale to like do all the complicated things you'd want to be able to do. And my, my thesis mm-hmm. is that um, you, you we have to limit programming even more. Like there are certain things in origami, like pulses, that aren't very functional reactive. That we that are, that we if we like continue to like make origami have a model that looks a lot more like uh, kind of Elliot's like original conception of it, then we'll be able to to actually do it. So I'm I'm not sure if we'll yeah. be able to build the visualizations we we want in like RxJS or the JavaScripty uh, function. Uh, like FRP observable libraries, because I'm not sure they're pure enough, and th- I think you need the purity uh, to make visualizations. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure about that. That's my current thesis. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, well, so one question I wanted to ask is um, about how origami kind of relates to state charts, because I can definitely see how origami would inspire you to have that vision you mentioned earlier, where as you're interacting with an app, you can see yourself being moved through the, through the state chart because in origami as you're interacting with the app you're seeing the values like numbers and, and objects flowing through the application and it's like unbelievably beautiful in a brett victory way so how does yeah. that work <laughs> with in, with uh state charts how, how does it like how does it come together usually so state charts they state charts embody the idea of just events-based programming um where everything is an event and everything you do is an event that could cause state changes as well. And so I think origami, it's more the visual side of just connecting nodes, you know, to other nodes via edges and doing so in a directed way. Um, But also the idea of, um, of combining the ideas of like functional reactive programming uh, with states charts and, um, so, so that's something that origami is sort of missing. Like you said, there is an upper limit and there are limitations to uh, just how complex logic you could describe in origami. And I definitely think that state charts can fill that gap. Uh, I, I remember I was, um, I, I do a lot of fun animations on my code pen uh, where I would see something very intricate and very fun and animated on Dribble, and I would try to recreate it. Uh, and I've definitely run into roadblocks before where just the logic was very complex uh, because it's like if you swipe up one way, then some animation is going to happen depending on which state you're in. Uh, and so once I refactored to use state machines and state charts, then things became a lot more clear. Um, for example, you know, just like swiping or... Um, like just certain taps or like using two fingers to zoom or just any various complex animations like that uh, sort of requires you to think about it in a modeled way and think about what's going to happen if I'm in this state and the user does this uh, versus when I'm in some other state and the user does the same thing. And so that's where state charts can definitely come into play. So I just envisioned this visual interface where we have many state charts. And so these state charts look like these origami patches and they're all connected via links. Um, and then you could just see your, see your application in real time visualized, very similar to how origami visualizes uh, applications. And it's hooked up to your live application, so you don't have to... Yeah. You got it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Very so that's a future I envision. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. My future I envision intersects with the future you envision. Awesome. Uh, so you mentioned CodePen, and I want to talk about that a bit too, because um, 
I know you're big on CodePen and it's this weird kind of community. So I wanted to hear about, you know, how you got into it and, and what you think of the community. And also you have this um, live stream YouTube thing, uh, Keyframers, and I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So CodePen, um, I got into it a long time ago, I think over three years ago. Um, and it, the thing that I like most about CodePen and the thing that I find most valuable about it is its community. It's very much community-based where you're not just creating a throwaway pen, but you're actually showing something off to the broader front-end community. And uh, CodePen will highlight these pens by either picking them or putting them on their Twitter page or you know things like that. And you could also fork other people's pens and work based off of what they made. Um, I, I started off creating CSS-only concepts with CodePen, just taking a look at these awesome animations that I found on Dribbble and thinking there's got to be a way to do this in only CSS, so no JavaScript at all. And so that became a really fun challenge for me and a challenge that other people found very interesting too because now I was using CSS in these uh, new and different ways where it's not typically used, such as you know checkbox hacks or uh, just various transition functions and things like that. Um, but it became a really fun challenge for me, and it got me thinking more and more about how we could declaratively represent these complex um, animated concepts uh, in a declarative way. So at first it was only CSS, and then I realized, okay, this, like doing it with just CSS is not going to cut it for everything. Like there are some things that are quite frankly impossible unless you use JavaScript. But I wanted to carry that declarative nature of CSS over to JavaScript. And so that's when I started thinking about um, using RxJS for animations and using uh, state charts and state machines to represent animations as well, which there are quite a few animations on my code pen where if you dig into the JavaScript code, you will find very explicit state charts and state machines within yeah. there. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about CSS because... Uh, it's a declarative language, and as we talked about, into declarative mm -hmm. languages. But a lot of times, when I am spouting the virtues of declarative languages to other people, they come back at me with, um, you know, like, well, CSS is declarative, and CSS is the worst. Um, or, or, or they'll <laughs> say, you know, in, instead of CSS, they'll say the same thing about SQL. Uh, so, right. but it, it sounds you you are someone who spent a lot of time with CSS. I guess you're kind of on the cutting edge of CSS. So, I'd be curious to get your sense of, you know what you like about it, what you don't it, in terms of declarativity um, and um, if you had any thoughts on it, like how you would improve CSS if you could. Right. So CSS is, and I guess this is the gripe of others, CSS is underpowered. However, it is deliberately underpowered. In fact, uh, on the W3C page, it uh, cites the principle of least power which means that, you know, a, a domain-specific language should, you know, should limit itself to do, you know, only the bare minimum of what it needs to do. In CSS, it's, you know, styling in a very declarative way using uh, selectors and different rule sets and just uh, all of these specificity, you know, aspects as well. Um, but that's important because that keeps CSS declarative. Um, 
I guess one of the upsides and downsides of having a fully declarative language is that some things do become impossible, especially if taken in the perspective of, oh, I could just do this in JavaScript and, you know, it would be easy. Um, but people who say that are not seeing the full picture. And the full picture is this. Let's say that, let's say that you weren't allowed to use CSS and instead you had to use Canvas for everything. Okay, sure, you could do it. Canvas has a bunch of imperative APIs. You could do basically whatever you want. You could draw anything. But then try to debug something in Canvas or try to inspect like just a circle or a shape that you made and immediately you see the downsides of doing something in a fully imperative, very powerful way, which is using JavaScript. Um, with CSS, because there's essentially only one way to do things and one way to achieve layout and style and color and fonts and all of that, uh, you have these very rich dev tools. Even for animations, you have these dev tools where, the, like, I love the animation dev tools, both in Firefox and Chrome, because you could scrub through animations, you could slow them down, speed them up, modify them, and just visually inspect them. You cannot do that uh, with, let's say, Canvas or using request animation frame because basically it's a it's a free for all. There's no declarative representation of what you want to do. And to me, those visual tools are are extremely important, especially when you know developing complex software, uh, especially in a visual way. Um, so that's that's one of my favorite parts about. Uh, CSS and having these declarative languages. And I think that developers are too spoiled in thinking that, uh, yeah, I could just do JavaScript however I want, just write imperatively. And they think that the end goal is that their app works. Um, sure, they could manually write hundreds of tests or whatever, but they're just like, okay, my app works, it's done. But to me, that's not being done. Being done is can I analyze my entire app or my entire uh, layout and everything and uh, just be able to um, understand how the entirety of the app works and be able to generate tests automatically for it? Uh, even with CSS, you could do this as well. You could uh, generate visual regression tests, but also you could uh, just analyze like different um, sizes and colors and just make sure that things haven't changed. Um, you know, just between revisions and also that things work responsibly and all of that. And so I, I think that there's a lot of value in having a declarative, um, a fully declarative language and sticking to declarative concepts. Now with CSS, I do wish that it had more powerful uh, declarative animation tools because there's a lot of tools that sort of fill that gap, such as uh, GSAP, which is very imperative. I must be the only the only front-end developer who doesn't really use GSAP. I try to stick with CSS animations as much as I can. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that CSS, you know, one day maybe it will get more powerful animation tooling in which it could describe more complex animations. Um, but uh, CSS variables are good for that, too. Yeah, are there other... Um JavaScript animation libraries or CSS animation libraries that you use and you like better that than GSAP? So for dynamic animations, um, I will either use RxJS, like I'll just 
straight up use that just because GSAP isn't really useful for dynamic animations. It's more for static timeline animations. Um, and for, for those timeline animations, I would try to use the Web Animations API as much as possible, especially because now most of the API is implemented across Firefox, Chrome, and uh, Safari as well, or at least Safari 3 Technology Preview. And I think it's just going to come out in the next version, which is extremely exciting. Uh, not Edge yet, but you could easily just fall back to no animation. In the description of keyframers somewhere in the internet, I saw that you talk about, like the point of the show is to construct interesting user interfaces. And um, I'm someone who also was obsessed with the construction of user interfaces, but I sometimes have trouble explaining to other people why I think it's an interesting field, uh, like as opposed to the construction of databases or, or just like other software things. So I, I, I was wondering if you had a, uh, any eloquence on that topic of why the construction of user interf interfaces is a compelling study. Um, I, I think it is because it exists outside of a vacuum. We have many different browsers that users use. And uh, like, for example, with databases, you could control the environment with, you know, with which it's in, especially with tools such as Docker. You know, you, you have that all nicely contained. You, you, you could predict exactly what's going to happen. Uh, with user interfaces, it's a, it's a bit different. We have all these browsers, all these different devices. A, a user could be using your website or web app using a mobile phone, tablet, uh, laptop, desktop computer with a, I don't know, 40-inch ultra-wide screen. I don't know. And so th there's a lot of different considerations to make when constructing user interfaces where it's just not not just a simple user interface. You have to take a whole bunch of different uh, variables in into effect. And so there's a lot of environmental concerns like what's going to happen, what's the user going to do, and how do we deal with different types of users, uh, for example, accessibility, like how do we treat our visual user interface uh, and make it work for someone who's blind or deaf or hard of hearing or just a combination of all these things. And so there's, there's a, lot, a lot more considerations with doing user interfaces, and that's what I find so interesting. Cool, yeah, same, well, well said. Um, all right, well, I had, I had one, one other question for you that's kind of... Um out there, but it brings this conversation full circle. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about improving programming and making it more like musical notation. I was wondering if, yeah. if you who are thinking about all these ideas of improving notations have any ideas on improving musical notation itself. I know it's been around for a while, but I was wondering <laughs> if you had thoughts there too. Um, there have been many attempts to just, you know, modernize music notation and uh, create like you know, basically use colors or different shapes to describe different things. Um, but I think that what a lot of people don't know about music notation is that it's evolved over centuries. Like, you know, we started with like uh, the original Gregorian chants where, you know, you had these weird boxes and lines and then that eventually evolved into modern musical notation. And even with modern, more abstract music, um, we didn't change musical notation. Instead, we added onto it, you know, with certain symbols, like especially for things that had no time signature or key signature or, you know, was atonal. Um, but basically it, it evolved from these core concepts over, over many, many, many centuries. 
And I think that that comes back to programming too, because a lot of people are trying to invent new ways of managing, you know, states or just events or whatever. But there's, there's all these concepts that are literally decades old, if not half a century old, that we could just apply to our current work and that other industries have been applying to their current work with success. I mean, the reason you and I are alive today, probably, is because the hardware that we relied on, you know, didn't accidentally kill us. And the reason that that happens is because the software and hardware was modeled in a way over, you know, many, many, many decades using these principles in such a way where we could, you know, just predict any sort of situation that might happen and uh, be able to thoroughly test these products and make sure that it does what it needs to do. So sorry, just to be clear, you're, what industries and are you talking about? that? Uh, well, just various um, like uh, embedded electronics, hardware, automotive, avionics, um, just anything that deals with the combination of hardware and software. And what kind of tools do they use? Do you have like names or something like more specific? I, I don't have names specifically, but I do know that, uh, like, for example, I was talking to my friend who does audio engineering, and they say, uh, he said that um, some of his colleagues use, for example, MathWorks state flow uh, software uh, in order to, you know, just model, like, the, for example, the design of chips, like electronic chips, that's all essentially state charts and state machines. And so, I, you know, I might be wrong, but I'm not too knowledgeable on, you know, just these chips. But it's it's a very like it's a circuit. You know, you you have like different nodes, and it it could be modeled as a graph. And uh, yeah, and and so like the the example I give for state machines is always uh, traffic lights. That's like the hello world of state <laughs> machines. And so, <laughs> I mean, imagine a JavaScript developer programming a traffic intersection, that would be pretty scary. <laughs> Got it. Okay, so you're saying <laughs> that um, you, you want to bring some of the like tools that other software industries are using to web development. Or basically using the same concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and not the same tools, which is, uh, the same conceptual ex- tools is what I meant. Yeah, yeah, which is essentially just explicit software modeling, which is something that we're sorely missing in the web development and mobile development industry. Cool. Uh, I'm agreed. Um, on that note, I wanted to close up um, and give you an opportunity to mention the places you exist on the internet, uh, like the or if how to reach out to you. I know you have a Patreon, so if you wanted to mention that. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter, or I'm basically everywhere at David K Piano. So Twitter, GitHub, Facebook, Instagram, all of that fun stuff. Um, but also, I do these animation screencasts with my friend Stephen Shaw. Uh, and so we're over at twitch.tv slash keyframers. And we, we do have a Patreon set up because we're trying to uh, get better equipment for streaming and all of that. And uh, we, we basically break apart um, just these fun, complex animations that we find on Dribble. And we program it together, just do some insane pair programming. And for some of them, we do use state machines. And I show people how useful both state machines and reactive programming and you know how useful they could be. Sweet. Um, so thanks so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, thank you.